0: Welcome to New World of Work, a podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce. I'm Reese Black, Head of Workplace Design at Oyster, a global employment platform making it easier than ever to build a brilliant team on an international scale. On New World of Work, we'll hear from some of the world's best and brightest people and culture experts on cutting edge topics that people operations professionals need to hear today, all through a global lens. Join us as we navigate this new world of work together and learn more about each other along the way. As people ops leaders know, trust is key in the relationship between their team and the rest of the organization. But what happens when that trust is broken or when the relationship between people ops and employees becomes strained? Can these relationships be repaired? And if so, how? That's what I discussed with today's guest, Marcella Dukli, the Head of Workplace Strategy and Innovation at Charter. Marcella gives her valuable insight into what she views as the role of people ops within the organizations, strategies to strengthen and repair the relationship between people ops teams and employees, and why these relationships break down in the first place. So to start, could you please state your name and share a bit about your career experience so far?
1: I am Masella Dukley. Um, I'm currently the Head of Workplace Strategy and Innovation at Charter. And prior to that, I worked at Life Labs Learning, Squarespace, Warby Parker, and so my career has been filled with startups. And I can't figure out if that's because I'm a masochist or not, or if I just really love the you know energy of creating something. Um, and of course, you can do that within more legacy organizations as well. But yeah, primarily startup, and I've just been focused on people, how to make work better for them, how to, I think, create. An environment where they also feel part of the decisions and the processes that are made. I think when people feel part of what you are doing and it's not just being set up for them, they're way more likely to actually engage and also way more likely to be productive, effective and happy in their workplaces.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, yeah. And yes, I do think you have to be a bit of a masochist to have a career in startups. <laughs> Just <laughs> I, a little bit. I, I identify with that. I feel the pain <laughs> um, and, and, and the enjoyment, the fun of it. Yeah. Um, so so you mentioned Charter, uh, the, the, the company that you're currently with. Uh, could mm-hmm. you please tell us a little bit more about Charter? What's the, the mission of the company and why are you so passionate about it?
1: Absolutely. So at Charter, our mission is to transform every workplace by just catalyzing a new era of dynamic work where people and organizations thrive. The emphasis is on the and. And we're designing new frameworks for work so that people have access and and credible access to sophisticated journalism, actionable research, and advisory services that can really sort of empower leaders to be in the position to effectively transform their, their workplaces. I mean, in terms of why this matters to me, I would just say that, like the world is evolving very rapidly, perhaps more rapid than ever before. And I think if we're not mindful about the impact that that has on humans, what we will see, and you know, I know right now we're in an economic um economic uncertainty, and so it feels as though there's a shift where sometimes it can seem that employers are holding the power, but I don't think that that is something that like lasts forever. I think it's a cycle. And so if people don't feel like their needs are being met, if they don't feel like they're going to have access to the type of work life that's going to support their personal lives, they're going to leave either find new workplaces or go and start other things on their own. And it's just imperative that workplaces have the tools to be able to create environments where people can show up, do good work, and also really want to be there.
0: Yeah, really interesting. Um, you used the term there, and I wonder whether you, uh, it's, it's kind of uh, central to, to your way of thinking. So, so I wanna ask, use the term dynamic work. Uh, maybe if that means anything particular to you, could you define that?
1: Yeah, I, I think from my view, when I think about dynamic, I think about, I think like simplified, it's layered. And by that, what I mean is like, if you look at generations before us, our parents, our grandparents, there was sort of a very, I don't want to say stagnant, but I guess I would say rigid approach to work, which is like, you have to have a job, of course, because we all need money to survive. And hopefully, it might be something that you like, but maybe it won't be. And that's okay. You pick the employer, you stay there, and hopefully for years to come. And hopefully, you grow in that career, et cetera, et cetera, And then you retire at 65. And then you can enjoy your life. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like, very miserable. (laughs) Like, it's like, okay, so I can't be happy until I'm about 70. And on top of that, maybe I like my job, maybe I don't. I understand that there is a lot of privilege that comes with enjoying your job or feeling that it pays you well, etc. But I do think that it is more accessible than people think. And so when I think about dynamic, I mean, meeting those different checkboxes that people really didn't consider a meeting before because they didn't think it was a necessity. Like It is okay to have a job that you enjoy. It is important that you are paid well. It is important that you actually can come home and spend time with your family or take off time when you need it, or care for yourself and have access to resources that are going to set you up for success. I think the other thing to really understand, particularly in the US, but I'd say relatively globally, it can feel as though the public sector, our government isn't really serving us well. And so I think people are really looking at their organizations, the private sector to show up for them. And so if I'm going to give you my time and my energy and the time that doesn't even really belong to me, but belongs to my family, I'm hoping that you can also meet needs beyond me showing up and you giving me this sort of transactional pay.
0: Very interesting. Thank you so much. So you mentioned a little bit about your your role and your work that you do at Charter. Uh, I'd be interested to know, how did you end up there? And, and yeah, maybe you can share a bit more about what you're focused on.
1: I actually met our co-founder. Her name is Erin Grash. she's fantastic. She uh, formerly worked at the New York Times, Away, and we actually met in a women's networking group called Level, and Level is a women's networking group whose mission is to close the racial wealth gap. And so we met during the pandemic, like very height of pandemic. And we really just immediately clicked over the screen and eventually started hanging out uh, in person. But what I really always appreciated about Erin was just like her hunger to make the world better. And she's extremely thoughtful. And so when she told me that she was starting a company at the time, it was called Reset Work. She's like, you got to meet my co-founder. His name's Kevin. He's amazing. I think that what you're doing would be really helpful to what we're doing and so i met kevin and we all sort of clicked and connected and i did some consulting for them but i wasn't necessarily in the right place to leave my role at the time and so some time passed i think it was probably like a year and a half two years something like that and finally uh, late last year i was like i think i'm ready i think i'm ready to start something new and and kind of create new challenges and again again the masochist in me is like startups like very early stage exactly that's exactly what i want and (laughs) that is how i ended up at charter
0: i get the feeling from from just the conversation we've had so far that you're quite deliberate about the i guess roles that you take and the direction that you take your your career in Um, if you were to i guess boil it down to an elevator pitch, if that is possible. Um, What would you say your sort of overarching mission is that you're you're looking to achieve with your career?
1: Yeah, I think when I look back at 65, hopefully a little earlier before, before then for my own sanity, I want to feel as though I've left people better than I found them. I think the core of that comes down to generosity, generosity with my time and knowledge, and I also really like to keep abundance um, as a fundamental theme in that mission. And the reason is that I think sometimes, and we see this on LinkedIn, we see it so many places, people love to do this sort of gatekeeping as if I've got all the information, and if I tell you what's going to happen, and I'm just not a believer of that, I kind of see it as like a recipe. There are thousands millions of recipes all over the internet, and it doesn't mean that somebody's going to create something exactly the way that you do. but giving them an opportunity to try is really powerful for like us as human beings in general, giving people access to things. And so the way I see it is like, I want to be generous with everything that I have. And of course, you know, within boundaries that don't sort of make my life harder, but be generous with what I have and believe that there's abundance. There's always more, there's always more knowledge, more wonderful people, more wonderful companies. Like there's not a shortage of things. And I hope that that can one inspire people to do the same and also hopefully in whatever context it's happening make their lives a little bit easier.
0: That is a very beautiful way to frame a career. That's that's lovely. So I guess it'd be good to start getting into a little bit more detail in terms of the work yeah. that you do at Charter. What are what are some of the, the the challenges that you're you're focused on solving at your work through your work right now?
1: Yeah, oh so many things. Um I would say most most New to to the horizon is, of course, AI and how HR leaders can really integrate that into their workplaces and how they're working. Uh, Remote and hybrid work orientation, how to set teams up for success. If we're coming into the office, how do we make sure that people actually want to come and be there? Employee engagement, how do we make sure that people can be effective and efficient and productive in their work and also feel excited about what we're doing here and not sort of, you know, doing all the quiet quitting, et cetera. And then I think that also piggyboards into just employee life cycle. So oftentimes we have members uh, come to us and they're looking for onboarding and retention strategies. Like, And I think that that's such an important thing to, to look at. You want to look at the time somebody is even thinking to apply to your organization. And then even when they've left, like, what does it mean? How are you being intentional about that? Uh, another thing that comes up often, learning and development strategy, upskilling, culture setting. So There's a myriad of things and every organization is in a different place. And that's what's really exciting for me is that I get to just sort of meet them where they are and hopefully share with them things that might make a real impact.
0: So obviously one of the main things we want to talk about today is uh, the... I guess tensions that can sometimes form between people, teams, and the employees that they, they look after, particularly in tough times, which we happen yeah. to find ourselves in, if you are uh, <laughs> in the in the tech industry. Um, and you you also mentioned, I think this we're going through something short term that is uh, that is tricky. But as you said, yeah. and I agree with you, I think there's a long term shift, a long term reprioritization of um, employee expectations that I think is. Mm-hmm. is needing to be addressed so with that said especially with what we're 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 dealing with now what are some of the 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 biggest challenges that you're you're seeing people teams facing that you're working with
1: i would say to start and i mentioned this earlier is that again like the world is changing so very rapidly every single day that is a lot for any one person to to keep up with and i would even say like a charter that's what we see as one of our advantages we have a year-long membership product. And so it's it's called Charter Pro. And we're like, we're here to make it so that you, one sole person that's often sometimes how HR teams can be, and even when they're very big, it might not be somebody's entire job to sit down every day and be like, what's happening? What's you in research? How can I help people? like They've got real tactical things to do on a da- daily basis. And so just the overwhelm of information, the overwhelm of change, the overwhelm of policy change in different ways, I think is a real barrier to how people approach things. And often it puts HR leaders in the position of being reactive rather than proactive. So that's one thing. Beyond that, just looking at people, all of us, people are burnt out. Yes, the pandemic, I guess we, you know, it's been globally declared over, but that doesn't mean that people have sort of, you know, reconciled the amount of energy that that has sucked from them, whether that means that they were schooling their kids at home or weren't able to travel or, Maybe they were sick. There were so many things happening. And so there's perpetual burnout. People are also looking for better ways to work uh, and a better balance of work, just like you mentioned, like the employee needs are changing. And I think it's because of the reckoning that happened during the pandemic, where people had a moment to pause and say, well, what is it that actually matters to me? The things that I might have cared about four years ago might look very different today. And I think what's unfortunate about that challenge isn't that H.R. leaders can't meet those needs, but I think it's that people are trying to figure out what they need themselves, and so if something, if the solution isn't always clear, you can see a lot of influx, and that's often why I think we see a lot of, I would call them almost like zeitgeist, like you know, every, every other few months, there's something. It's quiet quitting. It's great resignation. It's this or that. Like, there's always a new topic. And I think people are trying to navigate them, that themselves. And HR teams are trying to figure out how to support them through it. But it's, it's happening so quickly. And so when, when a challenge isn't, like, stable and it's not the only thing, it can be difficult to sort of nail down a solution. And then, of course, economic uncertainty doesn't help any of this just on an organizational level, on a personal level, we are being required to really do significantly more with way less than normal. And trying to solve for any of these problems with less capacity, less resources is, of course, going to be something that stands in the way here.
0: I want to come back to or or highlight one thing that I think you said there that is Really, really important. And interestingly, I don't really know whether I've heard it being spoken about in this way, or at least not mm-hmm. very often. Um, you mentioned this idea almost of like a pandemic hangover, right? That uh, yeah. I think really what you're getting at there, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is kind of frankly the trauma that that, that oh, yes. is is created and internalized by that. So of course there's the there's the acute shock and the acute problem of two years of of that not that acute still pretty pretty long to be honest but right. um yes the, the discrete uh event but then there is the internalized trauma that comes off the back of that i almost feel like that becomes more damaging and more difficult to deal with because it kind of just it just kind of creates noise in the background yep. it kind of kind of raises the the noise floor of a business and how do you how do you tackle that if the if the if the, the whole company just becomes a bit like it just increases the entropy in in the whole of your company or the whole of society. So there's the acute event. And then there's everything that comes off the back of that, which I guess the reason I'm saying this is is if I'm thinking about the person that's listening to this podcast and they're, they're a people team and uh, or a people leader and their exec team are saying, well, that's all gone now time to put the foot to the floor and start, you know, thinking about business again, they're going to have to set that expectation and, and make them understand look like we are not robots, this yep. will have lasting effects for, frankly, generations, just like many other traumatic things that happen and have lasting effects for generations and how people communicate, react to things, think about things, change their worldview, a whole bunch of different things. So I just wanted to like double click on yeah. that. I thought that was a really, really powerful point.
1: Yeah, Reese, and And I want to say, too, what you're mentioning, I think, is just the crux of it, like what really adds to that trauma and the extension of what we've experienced is the just get back to normal. First of all, there's no, like, where are we going back to? Like when people talk to me, leaders, and they're like, we just want to get things back to normal. I'm Like there is no going back to them. We're not going back. We can go forward and figure out what that looks like, but there's certainly not any going back. And the real push, it's like, imagine, you know, in any relationship, something happens that breaks trust and I'm not saying that every organization has done this, but I mean, just think about simple one-to-one relationships. Something breaks trust and one person is like, okay, I apologize, everything's fine. And it would be really nice if everybody could say, forgive and forget, it's not a big deal, but that's just not how it works. And sometimes people need time. And like you said, sometimes that time is truly uh, generational and beyond being generational, it's just like people are finding new coping mechanisms.
0: Something that really struck me during my conversation with Masella is that people teams have a lot on their plate in a post COVID workplace. Expectations have shifted, which means everybody is navigating what the new relationships and roles of people teams will look like. Something Masella stresses is that communication and transparency are key, especially in the current workplace climate. I wanted to know how she felt people ops leaders could prevent the strain on relationships with employees and maintain trust and openness. And also, how they could properly communicate the needs of employees to leaders in the organization. So with that said, you give me a fantastic segue there. You you mentioned this idea (laughs) of of breaking trust. Um, Yeah. Particularly when we're in a time when people leaders are, are navigating their companies through very tricky situations whether it be layoffs or a whole bunch of other things uh so i i'd love to get into the details of this a little bit more with you so first off what would you say are some of the the major causes that we're seeing some of the major problems that we're seeing when it comes to the breakdown of of trust between people teams uh, and the the employees that they work with
1: in my mind it's four major things the first is unclear expectations and unclear decision criteria if people don't know what to expect they're going to make assumptions. Generally, we tend to have a negativity bias. It's very easy. And oftentimes we're playing off of our prior experiences. You know, I'll give you this example. The other day, somebody sent me a, I don't know, an SNL like YouTube clip, and it was about something about an HR team. And, you know, it's, it's SNL, so it's intended to be funny, et cetera. And I take a look at the comments and somebody says, you know, Word to the wise for everybody who's young out there don't ever trust HR. They're not there for you, they're there for the org. And it had thousands of thumbs up. And it really bummed me out because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like every day I get up and my goal is to empower HR leaders, to make workplaces better, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that, of course, there are so many workplaces to tackle this in. So they might be having a different perspective than maybe what we tend to experience in tech, but even in tech. I think some of that comes down to this feeling when people don't know how you're operating. They don't understand what transparency actually means. They're not sure why a certain rule is being made. Or if you are deciding on something, make sure people understand how you're going to make that decision. So it's a really big thing. If you leave people in the dark, they're going to feel like you aren't on their side. Uh, Second thing that I would say is a lack of follow-through. So HR leaders tend to be really good at Not all of them, but a lot of them are very good at surveys and questions and they make it appear that they want to hear from other people, but then they don't follow through. And follow through doesn't mean that you have to do the thing that somebody is asking. Sometimes you can't. You don't have the resources. You don't have the time. There's a reason why you're not prioritizing it. But if you are going to do it, that's fantastic. And if you aren't going to do it, help people understand why. Hey, we can't make this thing work and here's the rationale. But that insight is very, very important. Third thing I'd say is just a real lack of productivity and curiosity and an effort to really understand the employee point of view. And this includes you know, things like getting feedback, or again, like I said, HR leaders are good at surveying, but sometimes they're not asking the right questions. We really wanna understand the goals and just for you to be like, I've completed a survey, but to really understand where we can start to make high impact decisions. Um, and then the fourth is maybe an overarching theme is when HR can act sort of as like legal protection for the organization. It's just, it's re- it drives me, it drives me, no, that's like, I just, I can't. I think the thing that we have to remember is like, yes, unlike maybe other parts of the business, we have two major stakeholders, employee population and the general org. And I think people like to treat them as separate things. And I think what we have to remember is that our employees are our most significant asset and how we treat them, how they feel about their work and what they're doing. And the company is going to be a lead indicator of how successful that organization is. And so it's just imperative that we understand that being good to employees is also good for the business. If you can't do something again, it comes back to that follow through, help people understand why, bring them in on the decision, but, you've got to make sure that the two are inclusive rather than exclusive.
0: So I want to bring it back on to, to the first point that you mentioned about unclear expectations and uh, decision-making. And I guess the the first part of that is that, it, yes, it could be the fault of the, the people team themselves that are not clear in those ways, but they can also in, in a lot of uh, situations actually be... be taking the brunt of that for decisions that have been made by other people so other execs in uh, in a business for for the people leader that is listening to this right now and maybe identifying with this in, in in some ways what what would you say they should do so that it doesn't so that it isn't like the people team in their business is the bad uh, the bad person the bad the bad uh, entity all the time and actually they they can not necessarily pass on the accountability, but show that this is not just a people team decision, a people team expectation that it's part of this larger um, piece of work that's been done or decision that's involved other people.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think when it comes to avoiding the, you know, taking the brunt of how things fall at a company, it really, I would say, fundamentally starts with relationship building and also making sure that, through your relationship building, your stakeholders understand that you are a strategic entity in the business. I think, unfortunately, for a very long time, HR leaders have been in this position where, yeah, we sort of carried out the wishes of our CEOs and COOs and CFOs giving us budgets and limitations. And yeah, like that's part of it. We have to work with other people. But I think it's particularly dangerous if we just carry out what they say, and we don't pause to say, well, my, my stake in the business is making sure that X, Y, and Z happens. I have to have integrity while doing that. We have to make sure that these things actually meet all of the types of goals and uh, functions that we are trying to accomplish. But I think, again, the best way to do that is to start by relationship building. So your key stakeholders, generally, maybe that's your CEO and your CFO. Be certain that these people... Understand what you are trying to accomplish on a high level that can be translated into how they think about the business. Be very mindful that you understand what their interests are and what their motivators are because you're going to need those tools when making decisions with them. And I think, just like in terms of helping the rest of the organization understand how the HR function works, this is where the educational point comes in that I think is often missed. I think sometimes we do a lot of work as hr leaders and we assume that everybody knows what we're doing and i find that that's very rarely the case this is an opportunity to help loop people in hey hr you know is covering x y and z we work with every other leader in this business to make sure that you have these tools or that tool if you need something they might be your first point of contact but we are here for you but helping people understand just like how you know the the mechanism is working is really fundamental because they understand that there's more than one person involved. It's not that you just showed up in a room and said, okay, we're not gonna do this thing. That could be really detrimental to them. But again, highlighting, educating, ha- ensuring that people have access to understanding how things work. And then on the back end, you are working on those relationships to ensure that your stakeholders understand your role, they trust you, and they also know that helping you helps them as well.
0: I wanna ask a very simple question. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think I think it's worth asking it uh, to, to see how you think about this. Why is it important for employees to actually trust their people teams in the first place?
1: The short answer, aside from it feeling like a presidential tagline, is that we truly like go further together. None of us can read each other's minds. We have to see any working relationship that we have as a partnership. And I do think that it's important that we function as a partnership, meaning that I'm really clear about your needs. You're clear about mine. We can support each other in the journey. It's just going to make it that much easier. I will say that I do think that the organization has to be first in extending the olive branch in that partnership. So again, like from the day that somebody applies or even thinks about applying to a company, they look at the website, they they decide, okay, is this for me or not? They see that there are structures in place that indicate that, this company truly values their people, that they support their employees, that their employee base, that people feel seen and heard and recognized. It's very simple, I would say, in theory, just like how the question is simple, but I think it's a lot harder in practice. And the lead indicator of a truly successful organization is going to be how the employee base sees themselves. The lag indicator generally are all the things that a business might want when they're looking at their balance sheet. But we have to really think about how to make the HR employee relationship, a partnership, and not just that we provide for you and we hope that you're happy about it. No, get their input, make sure it works the best way possible for them. Let them be able to communicate that with you. It will make everybody's life tremendously easier.
0: So for the people leader that's listening to this right now, that their company potentially has went through a layoff in the last six months, uh, that... Uh, have had to make some tough decisions, and and there's there's been erosion of trust. There's been breaking of trust uh, in their business, and they're looking at engagement survey or engagement data showing it going down. They're looking at attrition rates increasing, and they're thinking about the the, the long road to recovery ahead. What what would you say to them? What what would you say to focus on? What would you say uh, is the way to 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 recover that trust with their employee base?
1: to start your philosophy or how you think about this experience is going to be very important. You know, as we've been talking about it's not to say that HR is responsible solely for the layoffs, but because you might be the one who's carrying it out and having conversations, it might feel like that to some people. It's easy when you're like in a one-on-one with somebody letting them know that today's their last day, that you become the the vision of the enemy or the thing that has happened bad to them. But I think we just have to understand that that's part of the work, which is why HR leaders have a very hard job. And it's not something that anybody wants to do, but it is part of it. And we have to keep that in mind. Time and action are going to be your very best friend in any period of repair. And when I say time, what I mean is that like, you can do all the right things. You can say all the right things, but if people aren't ready to move forward, they just won't. So like give them the space and time to process and, and, The thing about action, you're going to have to continuously be doing something. The very first thing that you want to do is really acknowledge that trust has been broken. Be specific about why. I've seen, unfortunately, in many layoff uh, scenarios where the focus is so very much on the layoff itself. It happens. And then, of course, you can expect that your employee base might be feeling you know, some survivor's guilt or that they're also concerned about whether or not they're next, et cetera, et cetera. And we forget that we have to acknowledge, like, I know this is hard for you. I know you might be concerned that, oh my goodness, are you going to have to do double the work now that half the team is gone? I know you might be concerned about what things look like in terms of what measures are we taking to ensure that this doesn't happen again, but you have to acknowledge that it's happening. Secondarily, give them space to process, air their grievances. Three, get really specific about what you're going to do next to support them, protect them, give them space to do what it is that they need to do. And don't just close the door where, you know, some organizations are, they do well at those first three steps, but they essentially say, okay, next week we're back to normal. And that's just not how it's going to work. And so this is where you sort of enlist other parts of the organization. It's not just HR. Your managers are there to have those one-on-one conversations on an ongoing basis, checking in. How are you, how are things going? How are you feeling about it? It needs to be, again, some more of a a cyclical experience and you're going to have more than one player in the game when thinking about repairing trust over time.
0: I think that's a really, a really uh, important point that you just mentioned that uh, people teams are in this interesting position that they in some ways have uh, an extended family, an extended team, yeah. being the hiring managers, the, the leaders of the business um, that really have a lot of um, responsibility, a, a lot of ability to repair trust, to, 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 to make this a place that people want to work in. Uh, and of course, the people team need to be in, in engaged with them and, and working with them what, what are some ways in a situation like this, where there maybe really have been some very challenging times that have come up that people teams can kind of double down on that or, or, or to invest in that to, um, help repair the problems, help repair the, the damage that might have been done. Um, just to, to, to rephrase that specifically when, when talking to, uh, or working with, uh, hiring managers.
1: Yeah. So like you said, hiring managers are such an important part of the equation. And I think what we have to remember, and this is beyond hiring managers, I would say, any people leader in an organization. Um, we face a workplace phenomena, which is that, and we've always faced this, which is that oftentimes people are promoted to their incompetence. Just because you are an excellent you know, salesperson or engineer or HR practitioner or coder or whatever it is that you do, you might be really great at it. And then you get promoted and now you're a people manager. And the skills that you have in that domain, people managing, might not be as strong as the other skills that you have that got you this promotion. And it's a really dangerous thing. And so HR leaders, HR teams have to be very, very thoughtful about making sure that their managers have access to the types of soft skills. I hate calling them soft skills because I actually think they're the hard skills that everybody botches on a regular basis. I think that these are the skills that end up, you know, leading to org failure and divorce and broken relationships and wars. And so they're not quite soft, but again, they're really hard for people to practice. Do your managers know how to ask proper questions? Do they know how to truly listen? Everybody thinks they know how to listen, but they usually don't. Are they um, creating an environment where feedback is one safe to share and is it being received by them? Do they understand if they hear something or see something, how to properly address it or escalate it up to somebody else or to the HR team? There are a few different things. And I think one of the best ways to go about it starts with like people training, people leadership training. I think, again, people sort of assume that some of these types of things happen by osmosis. Like They think you can watch other leaders and then you know what to do. It's just simply not the case and so you have to create some norms around that sort of thing and i think the other thing is just regular check-ins with managers helping them understand how they function within the larger role of org culture and org success is very important it's more than just like what you are doing in your day-to-day or the tactical function of, of your department you're thinking about how to support these people, how to make sure that they have the most effective processes and ways of working, and they have to know that. So very simply, it's communication, it's training, it's reminding them, and also doing some gut checks around whether or not they're actually being successful in those ways, and that means taking feedback that you get from their direct reports very, very seriously.
0: Something that you've spoken about in the past is about creating workplaces that drive organizational strength and then, you know, business outcomes off the back of that. Uh, I feel like that's a really interesting term. I've never heard many people talk about it in that way. You maybe sometimes hear organizational health, um, but I think organizational strength was a, was an interesting word choice or an interesting uh, way to way to think about it. Can can you tell us a little bit more about what you what you mean when you say that?
1: Sure. So what I would say is that this is so important right now. And the reason why organizational strength is important is because I think it to me is a metric of whether or not an HR team and a leadership team is successful in how they are thinking about organizational strategy. Um, And so to kind of get down into the details of like what I think is a sound or strong organization, one, your teams are operating as efficiently and effectively as possible. This means that you're really thoughtful about the right people, being in the right roles at the right time. You're thinking about what it means for those people to grow into new roles or what it means when they take on new experiences within the organization. This also means that your org design is really set up to ensure that people can be successful. You're thinking about your processes. You're thinking about the tools that you use. It's really just, you know, in the same way, I think if we kind of simply compare it to something else that would be familiar, you know, you can have the most lovely family, people who love each other and support each other, et cetera, et cetera. But if in your home there's not a toilet or they can't wash their hands or they don't have access to food, of course things are not going to work well. So yeah, you can put all the smart people, people love, we hire the smartest people. Hire smart, diverse, wonderful people and then you put them in a house that doesn't work. And like, what are you expecting them to do? So this is about right people, right tools, right time, right processes. And to me, that is where the strength comes. Obviously, you know, no organization is necessarily perfect at all of these things, but I think it's working at it bit by bit where it's like, all right, great, we've got the right tools right now, but I'm noticing that these people might not have the particular skill set. What should we focus on now? Is it some sort of training? Is it bringing in somebody from the outside? Is it peer learning? There are so many different ways to approach organizational strength, but you want to make sure that it's not just the people, but the systems as well.
0: I love that analogy. A house with no food is a very dangerous place to be. People will get hangry very quickly. Exactly. How do you think people teams will will look in the future? What, what, what are you, I guess, hopeful for or optimistic for?
1: Yeah, I think it's happening a little bit now. Um, I think I'll say this just before I sort of go forward. The pandemic to me was a real, the silver lining of the pandemic in the HR people industry was that for the first time, it really seemed that our stakeholders, our leaders were looking at us like, wow, this is not just a nice to have. Wow. This is not just about compliance or compensation. Like we need you. And so I hope that that narrative of we need you extends and not just needs you to do the tough, difficult things or have conversations that we don't want to have, but really set the strategy for how to make organizations successful across the board. It's that organizational strength. We need HR leaders to be there thinking about the larger picture. Um, My hope is that these are not just within companies, but also on boards, that there are HR leaders who are sitting there thinking about the people strategy, not just how many people are you hiring or firing, but what does it mean if we actually want to retain people and engage people? What does productivity actually look like? I also think that HR leaders and their teams are going to be seen as a very important metric of success when you look at successful organizations.
0: That's a really interesting point you were saying about that, that almost being like a, a checkbox that an investor wants to see. Um, yeah. Because you see that in some, some other ways, say, for example, you're building uh, a very technical product. If you didn't have a, a CTO that has the, the background, uh, for that technical product, an investor is probably going to raise an eyebrow at that and and think, well, yep. are you really investable? Are you, are you serious about what, what you're, uh, saying that you're working on? I think that's a, that's a really interesting idea, but I mean, I would assume that there is. There's a time and a place to some degree. If you're very early on in your career, sorry, very early on in the company's uh, history, then yeah, you're probably going to be more focused on product and marketing and and these sorts of things. Um, But even I guess at those stages, if there was there was. A visibility of the expectation of that from an investor to say hey we don't expect you to have all your ducks in a row at series a stage but you know yep. by the time your series b or your series c comes around uh, for us to to really consider investing in you long term uh, we want to see that you've got you know a really solid people uh, foundation in your business so that you know we know that you're going to be able to uh, deal with undoubtedly the challenges that will come when you become a larger more complex organization in that way
1: Yep. And I think that's exactly it, Reese, is that you're right. At a you know, smaller organizations are not going to have access to the same types of resources, et cetera, or time, or even the same types of hires necessarily depending on comp or what people, you know, are expecting. But I think I think it's just very important to lay the foundation earlier. I always say to people, like, in my time, I, I worked at Life Labs Learning before this, and I was a leadership trainer and would go into so many different organizations. And the thing that I always noticed was that like, if that care for people started early on, it was just much easier to scale. You know, if we start at 10 people and we care about one another, I'm not saying these people need to be your best friends, but there is a respect for one another. There is recognition. There's willingness to hear one another. There's a desire to work well together versus one person saying, this is how it's going to be. It was just so much easier to scale. So- trying to do that same type of thing, not to say that it can't happen, but when we're working you know, with companies that have, let's say even 5,000 people, let alone 20,000, it happens in pockets. Not to say it can't happen, but that's why you'll find organizational strength is just slightly more challenging, simply that in some places it works well and in some places it doesn't. And then you're really depending on your middle managers to create the type of culture. You almost got mini companies within a big company. So if you're looking for overarching scale, start start early.
0: I will big plus one on that. That's yeah. probably one of one of my main learnings from from Oyster is we, um, frankly, we over-engineered. We, we, we very heavily invested up front on some things that were really too much for, for the stage of company that we were at that point in time. But looking back in hindsight, paid off massively, massively to, yeah. to invest in these things early. You know, doing things for a hundred person company when we were 10 people, now we ended up having a growth trajectory none of us expected, and becoming a six, seven hundred person company in under two years. So it really, really paid off. But I yeah. think even for even for a, a normal company that is scaling, it really pays the dividends to invest in 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 that early. And I guess another way to look at that is we're saying that if you have a, 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 a an event in your company such as a layoff that breaks trust, it takes a long time to build. It takes a long time to build from zero, even if nothing happens in the beginning. Right? There's no. Yeah there's no uh, trust is not a prerequisite it's not it's not uh no. like it will definitely be there no matter what so if if you you can do the work from the very day one to actually become high trust by the time that these things might happen you're more complex you're larger trust is uh, more difficult to build at that stage 100 i i completely agree
1: yeah one thing that i'll add to that just because i've been thinking about it a lot recently i think another benefit of starting sooner is also that you build culture carriers. And by that, what I mean is like, when something good happens or something bad happens, people are invested in the outcome of what's going on within the organization and how everybody works together. And so it's not just HR or your CEO or somebody who's in some high role saying like, this is how we're gonna be. Everybody feels like they're contributing to it. And so again, when you hit a rough time, everybody feels like they have a responsibility to support the mission going forward. What can be hard is if you start too late, people are looking at you like, okay, are you going to fix it versus how can I jump in too? And so I think if you want more collaboration around having a healthy workplace culture, get everybody involved early on, like they'll see themselves as part of the vision versus fix it for me now.
0: Yeah, completely agree. So as I mentioned, this is a question that we ask everyone that comes on the podcast. What is the best mistake you've ever made and
1: why? Hmm. The best mistake I've ever made. Earlier on in my career, I—I um, I mean, maybe it wasn't so early. It was during my time at Life Labs. I had taught a group a series of like our manager training workshops, and they were wonderful, and it was a great group. And I had the responsibility of afterwards having a conversation presentation with their leadership team, sort of just sharing with them the insights that came from the trainings that we had done and what their people were saying, et cetera, et cetera. And I, oh my gosh, going into it first, I was sick. And I was like, just wanting to avoid the whole situation. I think it was maybe like, I think I just felt uncomfortable because I had known that the leadership team was resistant. And then of course, being under the weather, I didn't feel like I had the capacity to really go in and convey my ideas and my thoughts in the way that I wanted to. And anyhow, I go in, I'm feeling slightly intimidated. There's like only men in the room and they're all significantly older than me. And there was just this feeling of like, they don't take me seriously. Anyway, I shared what I had learned, what I observed, what I thought would be most helpful to their team to set them up for success going forward. And really it came down to modeling. Like you can't really ask people to be a certain way or do a certain thing if you don't do those things either. Like, of course, you're going to need to be part of the equation and supporting your team and being better. And oh my goodness, they pushed back and it was brutal. And again, like I'm under the weather and I'm just like, this is the worst. Like I was just thinking the entire time, like I was just itching to get out of that room. And it did feel like a mistake after I'd left. I actually like came back and I told my team, I'm like, I think I blew it. Like, I don't think they're going to have us come back ever again. I don't know what happened, but it just was not good. It didn't feel good. And it was an excellent, the reason why it was the best mistake I'd ever made was because it really helped me to one, learn to speak truth to power. Like, I was forced in that moment to have to do it because it was my job. But when I sat back and thought about it, like, it was the truth, despite them not wanting to hear it, despite all of the rationale or reasons why they were going to tell me why it couldn't work or whatever. Like, it was my responsibility to do the right thing. And the right thing is you've asked me to tell you what I've seen. I'm not going to sugarcoat it to make you feel better. I'm not going to sugarcoat it to make you feel bad. And I was just, really grateful in the moment that I did do it and that I didn't try to avoid it or didn't try to like get somebody else to do it. And granted, it felt rocky and granted, it didn't feel the best afterwards or even during. I recognize that that was like something that I wanted to do in my career, which is to be honest about people, to help them, to also like level and also understand that not everybody's going to want to receive what you have to say, even if your intention is to be helpful. But that doesn't mean that you don't do the hard thing. So I'm grateful that I did it it was really empowering. My approach to it these days is like, now it would phase me way, way less just because I understand that there's a lot of ego and fear and discomfort around getting feedback that maybe is not particularly positive. But if I intend to be helpful with anyone, that means that I can't BS them. And I'm glad that I had that rough experience because it just made me more inclined to want to do it again, but also want to do it a little bit well, so I was able to check in with myself and think about the ways that I can feel more confident going into situations like that again in the future.
0: Marcela and I had an enlightening conversation about the relationships between PeopleOps teams and employees, and the importance of building strong relationships within an organization. Here are my key takeaways from this episode. The world is changing and quickly. COVID continues to affect workplaces and ignoring that will do organizations more harm than good. People teams need to effectively communicate to leaders that employees need continued support. A house with no food doesn't function. No matter how great your team is, if they don't have the resources to succeed, they won't. Masella compares this to throwing a loving family into a house with no food. No matter how great the relationships, things will break down quickly. Communication is key. Nothing erodes relationships like a lack of communication. Trust is broken when employees don't have transparency into why decisions are being made and don't feel like their feedback has been taken into consideration. No one likes being left in the dark. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of New World of Work. Thank you for listening to New World of Work the podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce through an international lens. We hope this episode served to expand your horizons and open your mind to a new perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review the podcast so that we can reach more listeners. I'm your host, Reese Black. See you next time.